Welcome to Mosaic Podcast. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Mosaic Church, Leeds, based in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information on Mosaic Church, please visit mosaic-church.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Read at verse 17, uh, and the heading I have in here uh, is Jesus Heals a Paralytic. So here we go. One day, as he was teaching, uh, Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village in Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem were sitting there. And the power of the Lord was present for Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay before, to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of him. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who can forgive sins? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, Or to say, get up and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. Uh, We're going to look at this passage in a little bit. Uh, Before we do this, I spend a lot of my time working with children uh, and it's always good to have a little bit of fun. Uh, So I thought we'd have a little competition this morning or a little quiz and we can do this in one of two ways. We can either do it in the non-competitive way uh, or we could do it in the mildly competitive way. Uh, And those of you who know me well will know which way I would go for. Uh, So Anyone fancy the non-competitive way? Well, no one. Wow, that's amazing. I can't believe that. Okay, well, let's do it in the slightly competitive way. So uh, we're going to split roughly down the middle. So if you're kind of on this line, you can choose. But if you're over there, you're on that team. And if you're over there, you're definitely on that team. Okay, well done. Like a true Wolves fan. Uh, So on the screen, there are going to be some uh, pictures. What you've got to decide is which place is closer to this building, according to Google, which might not be the most accurate way to do this. Uh, and it, I should say this is by car. Okay, so if you're, it's not how the crow flies. It's really, Google don't do that. If you try, if you go on Google Maps, they don't give you the crow flies. They give you either train, bus, walking or car. So this is by car. Okay, so uh, let's start with this team, who can be team one, for uh, for argument's sake. Well, it's basically team two, by the way. Uh, so, team one. Which one of these two places do you think might be closest? Now, if you're struggling to know which what places we're in, then uh, anyone want to just tell us what places, first of all, you think we have here? York is the one with the uh, the tourists standing on the wall. And the other one, Sheffield. So, from Sheffield, brilliant. Okay, 
So which one is closest? So we'll, what I'll do, I'll pick, I'll pick a person who can take all the heat for your team. And if you get it wrong, that's the person you go and see afterwards. So Sheffield or York, team one. At the back. York is closer as you drive. Some people are shaking their heads, they're a little bit worried, but I'm going to take your first answer. So Sheffield, 34 miles. York, 27 miles. Which means the points of this team, they get harder by the way. That was like the easy one. Okay, so this team, your two places. Anyone know? I think you got it, Alex. The first one. Edinburgh and, and London. So Edinburgh or London from Coburn High School. Anyone want to be brave? Put their hand up. A couple of people saying Edinburgh. Anyone want to quickly hush them or not? <laughs> okay, I'm going to put, I'm going to go with, person put their hand up and tell me the answer. Yes. London. Okay, we're going for London. So Edinburgh, 226 miles. London, 193 miles. So one point, one point all. Okay. Uh, number, next one. So number two for this team. Here we go. We have got, oh, no. <laughs> that's not Sheffield. Although, maybe, I don't know. Maybe that would work. That's why people don't go to Sheffield. So, just to confuse you, Amsterdam or, I thought I'd taken all the words, never mind. Amsterdam or Paris, as you drive. As you drive. Obviously, you're getting on a ferry at some point. Okay, anyone feeling brave? Yes. Amsterdam. Anyone want to disagree with that? No? Everyone convinced? Amsterdam, 399 miles from here. If you go, uh, if you cross at Harwich. No, 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 apparently Google says Harwich is the quickest way. <laughs> there you go. And the shortest. It's amazing. But there you go. Uh, and Paris, 472. So we are on uh, two points and one point. So next one. Thank goodness the words aren't on there. So we have got Rome, indeed, and... Barcelona, both both crossing uh, Dover, Calais. This one, okay. So there's a lot of pressure on this. So I'm not sure you can win if you get this wrong. Barcelona or Rome? Barcelona. Sure, you didn't put your hand up. See, at school, that wouldn't be allowed. In fact, I'd have to put you on the thinking chair. Uh, anyone want to put their hand up and give me an answer? Yes. Barcelona, which is 1,114 miles from here. As opposed to Rome, which is 1,350. So, uh, I thought this might happen. We've got a little tiebreaker. Okay, so... Uh, 
This is our tie-break question. Uh, I haven't quite thought through how we do the tie-break. So uh, I think we'll toss a coin and see who gets to go first. And then they'll have one answer and then the other team can have to make do with the other answer. Is that fair? So we've got Cape Town and Rio. Now, obviously... Now, yeah, I should say Google Maps wouldn't let me drive to either of these places, which is very different. It's not my heritage. They wouldn't let me do this. Yeah, we could do that. Okay, yeah, let's do that then. All right, let's go with. Although that would that would take out one of the one of the places, which feels a bit unfair. Okay, let's go with Cape Town then. So, uh, yeah, let's go with closest. That's a good idea. Which one is nearer, uh, or who's going to get nearer to the one place? So, Cape Town. How far do we think in miles? That's like the hardest question ever. It's like the worst geography. Ten thousand one hundred from this team. Now, if you're really clever. You would go like one mile less or one mile more. That's what I would be doing at this point. 10,100. 8,000. Dead on. (laughs) Give or take a few miles. So 10,100. 8,000. Everyone look at the the man in the yellow t-shirt on this team. Okay. Uh, Cape Town is... 6,148 miles away, which means round of applause from the gracious losing side for the winning team over here. Just for good measure, Rio is uh, 5,848 miles. So there you go. Rio is closer than Cape Town. So if you want to go to the Olympics, then that's how far you need to go. Um, so what has this got to do with uh, Luke's gospel and Jesus healing a man who can't walk. Uh, well, the question this morning really is how close or how near is God? How near is God? In terms of this building, how close would God be to Coburn High School this morning? What would your thoughts be? Would it be that God is way beyond galaxy and so very, very far? Or is there a different answer to this question that is to be found in this story? So let's go through this. Um, I love this story. It's one of my favorite stories. Um, And we're going to start at the beginning. So one day, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village in Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem were sitting there. Now, that's kind of what happens when you read the story is you read that sentence and then you get on to the real story. Uh, because not a lot happens in that story. But it's really interesting that there were people who had come to see Jesus. Pharisees. Here they are. This is a very good picture of what Pharisees would have actually looked like. Um, they would have almost certainly been cartoon caricatures of themselves. Uh, they were very serious people. Uh, they were essentially like a pressure group. They were the kind of people who were trying to get people to do what they wanted to do. They had kind of limited authority, actually. Um, But they were pressurizing people to follow the law. Uh, The people of God, years before this, had been given something called the Torah, including the Ten Commandments and various other laws. 
And these people believed that uh, if Israel uh, were going to be restored, they were currently under occupation by the Romans. They believed that if God was going to come and destroy their enemies and give them freedom again, then the only way that was going to happen was if everybody kept the law to the letter. And so they were quite concerned when they heard of this man Jesus, who was walking around and telling people, actually Israel's God is coming to restore this kingdom. He's going to put things right. He's going to defeat our enemies. So these guys were here because they were a little bit concerned about Jesus. And what's really interesting, I think anyway, about Jesus, is that Jesus never ever goes to these people. Jesus at no point goes to meet and goes to where these people are. They always come to him. Jesus only really ever goes to places where there are poor people or sick people or people who are on the edge of society. The only time he encounters the powerful are either when they really invite him to come or when they happen to be where he already is. You see, Jesus isn't interested in their agenda. Jesus is interested in those who can't help themselves. And so Jesus finds himself in this house in Capernaum, which may well have even been his own home, because this is where Jesus was living at the time. And it says there is a huge crowd of people there, so big that no one can actually get in through the door, because the power of God was with Jesus. And so these men come, carrying their friend on a mat. Uh, I think we might have a picture. Here we go. Again, definitely cartoon people. Uh, They come, carrying their friend on a mat, and they can't get in through the door because the room is too full. So they go up on the roof, and, I mean, it says here they took tiles away and start lowering their friend through the the roof down at Jesus' feet. However this would have happened, this would not have been particularly organized. And I quite like that. I quite like disorder and relative chaos, uh, as people who know me will know. Um, But they drop him at the feet of Jesus, who looks at the man, and what does he say? This man who's been dropped, who clearly can't walk, what does Jesus say to him? Your sins are forgiven. Now this strikes me as being a little bit of an odd thing to say to someone who can't walk. Here he is, the the only thing in the world, I imagine, him and his friends want at this point is for the man who is healing everybody else in the room to say to him, pick up your mat and walk. You are healed. But no, Jesus says, your sins are are forgiven. And you know, that's a really, really interesting thing for Jesus to say. And it actually upset quite a lot of those kind of grumblers in the room. In fact, it says they, they would started mumbling and grumbling amongst themselves. Why? Why did they start grumbling about what Jesus had said? Well, the reason is that the only person who can forgive sins was God himself. What is Jesus saying when he says to the man, Your sins are forgiven. He is saying that in some way, in the person of Jesus, God himself 
is present. That Israel's God is no longer far off. Israel's God is present in that room. That is why they get upset. And it's interesting because people quite often will say, oh, you know, Jesus never ever claimed to be God. Or uh, Jesus was just a good man or a good teacher. Uh, and things like that. And people will kind of hold up Jesus, even people who wouldn't want to say he was God, as that, a good teacher. But you know what? It is very clear that Jesus does claim to be God. And actually, throughout this story of Jesus' life, Luke makes it really clear that Jesus is, in some way, God walking on the earth. Everywhere he goes, he is doing things and saying things that suggest that. There's a story later on. Uh, in Luke's gospel, where Jesus goes to the temple, the place where Jewish people believed that actually the presence of God lived. They believed that in that building, God was there. And when Jesus walks into the temple, what does he do? Well, he goes in. This is like angry Jesus. And he goes in and he clears the tables. And there are people selling birds and other animals there. And he basically turns the tables out and he kicks these people out of the temple. Why does he do that? When I was a little bit younger, people used to say, oh, it's because Jesus didn't like Sunday trading. Which is quite interesting. Um, But actually, it's got nothing to do with that. They were selling birds and animals. Why? Because those were the things that people had to buy in order to then go and make a sacrifice in order to come into God's presence. Because people believed that they weren't able to come and encounter God unless they were clean. So, make, buy your animal, kill it, and then in some way your sins are forgiven and you can come into the presence of God. What does Jesus do? Get these animals out of here. Get these people who are selling these out of here. Why? Because this building is no longer the place where people encounter God. Jesus is the place where Jesus encountered God. And you know, it's no coincidence that when Jesus died, uh, if you are hearing this story for the first time, I'm telling it very, very quickly. Um, But when Jesus dies, what happens? Does anybody know? To the temple in particular. The curtain. There was a a curtain, probably about the size of that curtain at the back. That's a very good visual aid. That's brilliant. Uh, If you can't see it, turn around, have a look at it. It was about, they say, about the size of a basketball court. So that's probably not far off. Uh, a curtain like that, but unlike that one, it was as thick as your hand. Or, well, I guess it depends on how thick your hand is. But from your tip of your finger to your thumb. So not as, not as thick as my hand. That's not very thick at all. Uh, but that thick. And it says, when Jesus died, the curtain in the temple was torn down the middle in two. Why? Well, people often say, well, it was because it was symbolic of the fact that when Jesus died, people can now enter into God's presence. That curtain that hung in front of the holiest place where Jewish people believed God lived. That curtain's torn in two so people can now enter into God's presence. And you know that there is definitely truth in that. But there's a more... For me, a much more amazing symbolic thing of that. And that is that actually, when that curtain is torn, God can get out. God can be out. 
Someone once said that the wildest being in existence could not be contained to a building. A building that actually, if you go back in the story, God never wanted. Someone offered to build him this temple. And God says, who are you to build me a temple? I don't live in a building. I am wild. I live on the streets. There's this beautiful moment. I'm sure you might have seen the either red or seen the, the lion, the witch in the wardrobe. Uh, where Aslan, the lion, uh, who is obviously representing Jesus. And one of the children says to uh, someone, Aslan, is, is he safe? And the beaver replies, no, no, he's not safe, but he is good. And you know, that is the same as this God. God cannot be contained by a building. As Jesus goes round, everywhere he goes, he takes to people the presence of God. He is God walking on the earth. And you know, that is amazing because what happens when Jesus does that is that you see lives Utterly transformed. Lives turned on their heads. This man here has his sins forgiven. But he also stands up and walks. Because Jesus, as Israel's God, has authority to do that. Read through the story of Jesus' life. I urge you, if you've never done that, uh, and you think I would never do that, just pick up one of the stories, Matthew, Mark, Luke or John, and just read through the accounts of Jesus' life. And see what happens when people meet him. Because their lives are utterly transformed. Their situations are changed. Because when God meets people, that is what happens. Why? There's a brilliant, I think my all-time favorite quote ever, uh, is by a a German theologian uh, called Jürgen Moltmann, who sounds very German. And like a theologian. Um, but he says this about Jesus' activity in the world. He says, Jesus' healings are not supernatural events in a natural world. They are the only natural events in a world that is wounded, demonized, and broken. Jesus' healings are not supernatural events in a natural world. They are the only natural events In a world that is wounded, demonized and broken. The world around us is not how God wants it to be. You don't have to look very far to see that. The world is broken. The world is a mess. When Jesus walked this earth, he brought healing. Not as a supernatural act, but as a sign of what the kingdom of God looks like. A sign of what the world should be like. The world as God wants it to be. And Jesus walks around taking with him God's presence and bringing that level of transformation. Saying this is what it looks like when God works in the world. And you know you might be sitting there thinking well that's all very well. And even if that is true that was 2,000 years ago. That doesn't help me particularly here today. But you know, there is a great promise in the Bible and a great promise of Jesus. Uh, As Jesus dies and is raised from the dead uh, and is seen by his friends, at the very last moment, before he 
returns to his father in heaven. He makes a promise and he says to his friends, I will give you this Holy Spirit. I will give you the spirit of God. No longer will God be distant, but God will live and dwell in you. How far away is God? God dwells in you. God will live in your heart. One of the earliest Christians, a guy called Paul, described it as having like a treasure in a clay jar. That we are like a clay jar that walks around somehow. I don't know how he intended that. Um, But moves around with this treasure within us. That is the presence of God. How far away is God? God lives in us, in me. And so the presence of God today dwells, lives, is present on the earth in those people who have decided that what Jesus says is true and have decided to live for him. I don't know if anyone saw it. There was a brilliant um, program on, uh, I saw it on iPlayer, so I don't know when it was on actually. Um, But it was on BBC and it was by a guy called Adrian Childs who shares one of my great passions in life, uh, which is my football team. Um, but he's made this program. Did anyone see this program? Oh, you did. Brilliant. One, one or two people. Um, but basically, he's going around the Mediterranean, uh, and he's meeting with Jewish people, Christians, and Muslims, and just talking about very ordinary faith. Uh, and one of the programs, he goes to Jerusalem, and he goes to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, uh, which is the place where many Christians believe uh, Jesus actually died. Uh, it's just a big building that they've put in Jerusalem. Um, although other people wouldn't describe it like that. Um, and inside it, there is this, there's lots of things, um, but there's a stone, a particular stone where they believe, again, where some people believe that Jesus, when he was brought down off the cross, was laid down on this stone. Uh, and there were, as he was talking about this on the TV program, there are people literally kind of kneeling down with their hands pressing the stone, kind of weeping over the stone, uh, praying over the stone, um, which is, is fine. If that's something you've done, then I'm not knocking that. Um, but there's this really interesting conversation going on whilst people are doing that between Adrian Charles and this kind of cheeky Armenian priest. Uh, and the cheeky Armenian priest is telling Adrian Charles that actually the stone used to be outside the church, um, and so it wasn't where it is now. Uh, but they brought the stone into the church because it made it easier for them to kind of manage all the people kind of kneeling and touching it and stuff like that. Um, and then he said, oh, and actually, it's, it's not the actual stone either. Um, we've put a stone on top of it because we didn't want that stone to get damaged. But there's this sense in which these people are going to this place to encounter, in some way, God. And you know what? You can encounter God there. But the only reason you can encounter God there is because you can encounter God anywhere. Because God is not in a building. God is not living in a stone. God is wild. God is on the streets. God lives in the hearts of his people. And so wherever his people are, God is. And you know, that's a huge responsibility for those of us who claim that. Because actually, when we go from this place into the streets, into our homes, we carry the presence of Jesus with us. We carry God's presence. Why? Because God's heart is for people like us to go and make that kind of difference in the world around us. 
to see the lives of other people transformed. It's this great mystery that as God lives in us, he changes us into the people we are meant to be. But he also uses us to go and make a difference, to go and see other people's lives transformed and changed. But, you know, there is great grace in that. I'm going to finish with a little story. This is um, a story you might have even heard before, uh, if you know me, uh, because I love this story. Uh, but it, I couldn't think of any story that sums this up as well as this. Okay, it's uh, from a book called Messy Spirituality. Uh, and it's about a guy uh, whose name is Daryl Jenkins. Uh, so here we go. I'm going to read this, uh, and then I'm going to finish because I've probably gone on too long. Uh, So here we go. Every month, the youth group at River Road Church visited Holcomb Manor, a local nursing home, to hold church services for the elderly residents. Daryl, a reluctant youth group volunteer, did not like nursing homes. For a long time, he had avoided the monthly services. But when a flu epidemic depleted the group so much... Daryl agreed to help with next month's service as long as he didn't have to do anything. Daryl is my kind of guy. During the service, it go, it, you'll see, even more my kind of guy. During the service, Daryl felt awkward and out of place. He leaned against the back wall between two residents in wheelchairs. Just as the service finished and Daryl was thinking about a quick exit, someone grabbed his hand. Startled, he looked down and saw a very old, frail, and obviously lonely man in a wheelchair. What could Daryl do but hold the man's hand? The man's mouth hung open, and his face held no expression. Daryl doubted whether he could hear or see anything. As everyone began to leave, Daryl realised he didn't want to leave the old man. Daryl had been left too many times in his own life. Caught somewhat off guard, By his feelings, Daryl leaned over and whispered, I'm sorry, I have to leave, but I'll be back, I promise. Without warning, the man squeezed Daryl's hand and then let go. As Daryl's eyes filled with tears, he grabbed his stuff and started to leave. Inexplicably, he heard himself say to the old man, I love you. Daryl returned the next month and the month after that, and each time it was the same. Daryl would stand at the back, Oliver would grab his hand, Daryl would say he had to leave, Oliver would squeeze his hand, and Daryl would say softly, I love you, Mr. Leek. As the months went on, about a week before the service, Daryl would find himself looking forward to visiting his friend. On Daryl's sixth visit, the service started, but Oliver still hadn't been wheeled out. Daryl didn't feel too concerned at first, because it often took the nurses a long time to wheel everyone out. But halfway into the service, Daryl became alarmed. He went to the head nurse. I don't see Mr. Leek here today. Is he okay? The nurse asked Daryl to follow her and led him to his room. Oliver lay in his bed, his eyes closed, his breathing uneven. At 40 years of age, Daryl had never seen someone dying, but he knew that Oliver was near death. Slowly, he walked to the side of the bed and grabbed Oliver's hand. When Oliver didn't respond, tears filled Daryl's eyes. He knew he might never see Oliver alive again. He had so much he wanted to say, but the words wouldn't come out. He stayed with Oliver for about an hour before it was time to leave. Daryl stood and squeezed Mr. Leek's hand for the last time. I'm sorry, Oliver. I have to go. 
I love you. As he unclasped his hand, he felt a squeeze. Mr. Leake had responded. He had squeezed Darrell's hand. The tears were unstoppable, and Darrell stumbled toward the door, trying to regain his composure. A young woman was standing at the door, and Darrell almost bumped into her. I'm sorry, he said. I didn't see you. It's all right. I've been waiting to see you, she said. I'm Oliver's granddaughter. He's dying, you know. I wanted to meet you, she said. When the doctor said he was dying, I came immediately. We've always been very close. They said he couldn't talk, but he's been talking to me. Not much, but I know what he's saying. Last night he woke up. His eyes were bright and alert. He looked straight into my eyes and said, Please say goodbye to Jesus for me. And he lay back down and closed his eyes. He caught me off guard and as soon as I gathered my composure, I whispered to him, Grandpa, I don't need to say goodbye to Jesus. You're going to be with him soon and you can say hello. Grandpa struggled to open his eyes again. This time his face lit up with a mischievous smile. And he said as clearly as I'm talking to you today, I know. But Jesus comes to see me every month. And he might not know I've gone. He closed his eyes and he hasn't spoken since. And you know, I love that story because it so beautifully sums up what it is about being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus. We are so often reluctant. We are ultimately very, very uh, unworthy and unfaithful in our following of Jesus and our carrying of Jesus. But the great news is Jesus is none of those things. And when Jesus lives in us, when people encounter people who profess faith in him, they encounter Jesus. And just like this man, lives are transformed. People and places are changed. The challenge is, do we want to encounter and know the nearness of God? Who wants to change things for us? And for those of us who have encountered that God, are we able and willing to take the presence of God unfaithfully at times into the places where we go? I'm going to pray in a minute uh, and then we're going to sing. So um, if people want to come up uh, who are going to play instruments, that'd be good. Um, but let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you this morning uh, that you are a God who is not far away from us. That you are a God who is not distant. That though you are far beyond uh, our understanding, you are a God who is near, a God who is close, a God who longs uh, to change our brokenness, to change us ever so slowly even into the people you want us to be. And God, I thank you this morning uh, that when you do that, you also call us to a purpose, uh, to see the lives of those people around us change, not by us uh, as we do good things, uh, but by you and your presence uh, as we carry that into the places that we go. 
So Father, we pray we'd know your nearness. Uh, We would know it not just in our heads, but in our hearts. And we would be changed. And you'd use us to change others. Amen.